Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Daniel. The Gospel of Daniel. I was thinking about that, that you could pretty much say that about every Old Testament book. Turn to the Gospel of Genesis. Turn to the Gospel of Deuteronomy. Turn turn to the Gospel of Job. Turn to the Gospel of Habakkuk. Turn to the gospel of Malachi. Well, why, why can we say that? Well, what does the word gospel simply mean? Good news. And guess what? There's a lot of good news in the book of Daniel that ultimately climaxes in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we're going to be introduced to him in veiled form as we consider this new study of the book of Daniel. And so I want us to be thinking about this book from the very beginning as the gospel of Daniel, the good news that is contained here in the book of Daniel, and as is true of every other book in the Old Testament, they all point to who? Christ. And we want to see Christ as we study uh, this great book And so if you were not here last week, I told everyone that uh, after completing the Gospel of John, uh, we needed to find another book to study together as a church on Sunday mornings, and we have never in the history of Lakeside Bible Church, so over 15 years, studied an Old Testament book on a Sunday morning. And so we're going to fix that. We're going to correct that. And so here we are in the book of Daniel. I can't think of a, a better Old Testament book to uh, break the, uh, break the uh, chain there of no Old Testament books on Sunday than the book of Daniel. And so you're there, and let's just begin this morning by reading the first two verses. And I promise you we're not going to go that slow through this entire book. Um, we'll probably try to bite off actually a chapter a week if we can and finish this up this spring. However, I think these first two verses, as we're going to see are very critical to understanding the entire uh, theme, the big picture of the book. And so they serve as a perfect introduction to our study this morning. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. The Spirit of God through Daniel writes this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Father, we thank you for your precious word, and we believe that this has been inspired by you via the Holy Spirit, and so it's your very words that give us instruction, Lord, and ultimately eternal life. And so I pray as we launch into this study uh, this morning of this uh, classic Old Testament book that uh, some of us know a lot about and others of us don't know anything about, Lord, that you would bring us together, Lord, with a clear uh, understanding of the message of this book and why it's in your word and why you preserved it for us today, Lord. Um, And so I pray even this morning that we would leave here encouraged, Lord, by the good news that we're going to hear 
that you are ultimately in control of everything. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves now to your word. Pray that you would work in our lives uh, to accomplish your purposes for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, by now you've gotten used to me um, holding up books and recommending them to you to read. This is a must-read book, and uh, you've lost track of how many books I've told you to read. In fact, they're staring at you at your nightstand, right, in a stack of books that your pastor's recommended you have to read before you die. Well, I want to encourage you this morning by telling you a book that you don't have to read, Okay? This is a never-read book. I'm going to hold up here. This is a never-read book. I, don't you, I want you ever to read this book. I would never encourage anybody to read this book. And so this is one you can cross off your list, okay? I'm giving you some hope here, right? This is a book by a Jewish rabbi named Harold Kushner called When Bad Th- Things Happen to Good People. Anybody ever heard of this book? Uh, some of the older generation will remember this. This was wildly popular uh, back in the early 80s when it was first written, it was um, it spent over eight months on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, literary reviews praised this book as being, quote, honest, courageous, compassionate, wise, and insightful. And this was the line that got me, quote, an unprecedented source of comfort providing invaluable reassurance. You say, whoa, it sounds like I should read that book. Well, you tell me. This book was an attempt by the author to make sense out of the fate of his son who suffered from a rare condition called progeria. Some of you are familiar with that disease. It's a rapid, rapid aging where a child, a little child looks like a little old man. Well, this Jewish rabbi um, had a son who had this disease. And so he's asked himself the question that I think countless people have struggled with over the centuries. If, if God is both powerful and good, then why is there so much pain and suffering and heartache in the world? And why does my son have this awful disease? And so Kushner logically concluded that God must either be good, but not powerful, Or he must be powerful but not good. Because he obviously can't be both. Because if he was powerful and good, this would never happen. And so in the midst of his personal tragedy, Kushner opted to believe that God was good, but that not even God can keep cruelty and chaos from touching innocent lives. And so ultimately, he believed that God was just like him, a a helpless parent who was angered and and, and grieved by his child's suffering, but couldn't do anything to fix it, even though he wanted to. In effect, he blatantly denied God's power to control the events of our lives. Let me just read for you one quote from, from the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Kushner writes, Quote, if we have grown up believing in an all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing God, it will be hard for us to change our way of thinking about him. And that's, by the way, what he set out to do in this book, is to change our thinking about God. He says, but if we can bring ourselves to acknowledge that there are some things that God does not control, 
many good things become possible. Wow. Did you, did you catch that blasphemy? If we can bring ourselves to acknowledge that there are some things God does not control, many good things become possible. We simply have to learn to live with the fact that some things happen for no reason, that there is randomness in the universe. That's supposed to give us comfort? That's supposed to reassure us? Well, sadly, most people in our world share Kushner's opinion. I mean, just think about the regular use of of commonly accepted phrases like, well, that was just a freak accident. Or, wow, what a coincidence. That was a twist of fate. Man, you got lucky. Uh, Well, they were just circumstances beyond my control. It happened by chance. Or for... Those of you like Back to Future, it's my destiny. See, all these are blasphemous statements that contradict one of the most foundational truths in the Bible, and that is God controls everything in the universe. We know this as God's sovereignty, his absolute rule and control over all things. Listen to what A.W. Pink says wrote in his classic book, The Attributes of God, in describing or defining the sovereignty of God. Quote, the sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy. Being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, he is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him, none can hinder him. Divine sovereignty means that God is God, that he is on his throne of the universe, directing all things, working all things after the counsel of his own will. I think we're all aware that the sovereignty of God is asserted either expressly or implicitly on almost every page of the scriptures. Let's just look quickly at, a, at just a few of the key passages that clearly declare that God is sovereign. One of my favorites is Psalm 103, verse 19. It simply says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. I mean, we could just close in prayer and go home after that, right? I mean, that pretty much says it. Listen to what Isaiah It says in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 8, Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. Here is God speaking here. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Obviously, that was a veiled reference. That bird of prey from the east was the nation of Babylon. That man of my purpose from a far country was Nebuchadnezzar. And then in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6, 
in uh, the closing prayer that Paul writes here, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, he's talking about the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be glory and eternal dominion, amen. Nowhere in God's word does he more clearly reveal himself as the only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and eternal dominion than here in the book of Daniel. And I believe that's because at no other time in Jewish history did the nation of Israel need to be more reassured of God's sovereignty than during the days of Daniel. Daniel lived and served during the days of the Babylonian exile. And this 70-year period of exile in Babylon was a fulfillment of the prophecy that God had made to the Jews. God had chosen the nation of Israel to be set apart from all the other nations of the world. He wanted to use them to help every other nation to come to know him as the one true God. And the key to Israel's usefulness was her what? Holiness. So God set up special laws that he wanted them to keep so that they would remain set apart, different, distinct from all the other nations of the world. And he promised them as long as they obeyed these commands, they would be what? Blessed. But he also warned them if they disobeyed his commands, they would be cursed. They would be punished. And yet Israel worshiped the gods of the other nations They intermarried with the other nations, which caused them to lose their distinction and and their testimony. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, it's just marked by idolatry and immorality, just as a pattern throughout the Old Testament. And so consequently, God punished them by allowing the Gentile nations, the very nations that they were supposed to be reaching, to lay siege to them and conquer them. And this began soon after they entered the promised land. When when Joshua died, no one rose to leadership. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, as it says in the book of Judges. And the enemy nations surrounding them, primarily the Philistines, suppressed them until the people would cry out to God and, 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 and he would be gracious and he would raise up a judge to deliver them. And this vicious cycle eventually led the nation of Israel to to clamor for a permanent king to lead them like all the other nations. And so God granted them their request by providing them a king, Saul. How'd that go for him? Not so good. But then he replaced him with David, and that went a little bit better. And then eventually David died and left the kingdom to his son Solomon, who was conceived if you will, out of that unholy wedlock between uh, David and Bathsheba. And when Solomon died, a civil war broke out between his son Rehoboam 
And another man named Jeroboam, which led to the division of the nation. If you know, again, about the history of Israel, there was, uh, there was a division in the land, and, and ten of the tribes uh, went north. They were known as Israel, the ten northern tribes, and then two of the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, remained uh, together, uh, unified. Those, the two southern tribes were known as Judah. Well, the ten northern tribes uh, rebelled against the Lord, and they were defeated in 722 B.C. by Assyria. God brought Assyria, wiped them out, took them into exile, and they were never heard of again. And about a hundred or so years later, Judah didn't learn her lesson from the ten northern tribes, and the two southern tribes rebelled as well, and they were defeated by the Babylonians in 605 B.C. And that brings us to Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim... King of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Babylon had overthrown the, 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 the Assyrians, and uh, through the leadership of their king, Nebuchadnezzar, the nation had secured world domination. And so they were running around, taking over every other country, every other nation, and so they besieged the nation of Judah, and over the course of three invasions in 605 B.C. and 597 and 587 B.C., they, they systematically tore the city apart, piece by piece. They tore down the walls of Jerusalem, they burned the city, they, they leveled the temple, and that's all involved here in verse 1, the Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And then notice verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar took, took the articles from the temple, brought them back to Babylon, placed them in the temple of his gods, which was custom, customary in the ancient Near East, uh, the, this was um, commonplace for the victorious army to plunder the temple of the defeated nation and to, to steal all of the articles of their worship and then bring them back to their country and put them at the feet of their gods to symbolize that their gods were superior to the gods of their enemies. Kind of like, our gods are better than your gods. It was kind of that kind of thing. We, we see this back in... Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5. Turn back there quickly. I think this is a fascinating story that I'm sure most of you are familiar with. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant and uh, they brought it into the presence of their god, Dagon. This is 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. This was their pagan god. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. Can you imagine they walk in and their god's on his face, basically worshiping the ark of the covenant. They set him back up. Verse 4, but when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon had both the palms of his hands, and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold, only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. 
So basically they found him the next morning and his head had been had broken off, fallen, head broken off, hands broken off as well. No, no head, no arms, basically. What was God showing the Philistines? That while they thought that their God, Dagon, was superior to the God of the Israelites, no, not really, Dagon was inferior and was bowing down before the, the, the one true God. Well, a similar thing happened in the book of Daniel. It just took a little longer for it to materialize when Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, used those articles. He actually went into the, the, um, the temple, the house of their God in Babylon and, and, and said, hey, let's get these um, articles that we took from the Israelites back in Jerusalem and let's, let's party with them. This is in Daniel chapter 5, we'll get there eventually, but uh, he used these articles to drink out of during this pagan party, and God shows up at the party with his hand, remember this, and writes on the wall this message of judgment. And that very night, in a drunken stupor, the, Babylon, uh, the Babylonians were overtaken by the Medes and the Persians. The point is that whatever nation controlled the world at the time believed it was because their God was superior or sovereign, the sovereign ruler of the world. But the Spirit of God, through the pen of Daniel, made it perfectly clear that God was sovereignly in control of all that had taken place. Don't miss the first word of verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. God was the one who did this. God was in control of this whole situation. Notice verse 9 in chapter 1. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. I didn't just say, and Daniel, granted, uh, Daniel uh, earned favor and compassion in the sight. No, God granted him favor. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. So this is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and it doesn't say, well, they were just really smart guys, and they studied really hard, and that's why they were so you know, intelligent and rose to the top. The cream always rises to the top. No, God gave them knowledge. So you see this at the very beginning, that God was in control. God was doing all this. He was the one working behind the scenes. In fact, a hundred years earlier, God had prophesied that this was going to happen. Hezekiah, the king of Judah, had pridefully flaunted the holy vessels of the temple to the Babylonian king at the time in eagerness to strike an alliance. And as a result, God sent the prophet Isaiah to let him know that the Babylonians would one day carry off all the treasures uh, that he had shown off to them, to the king, and along with some of uh, his sons to Babylon. We see this in 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 17. Let me just read this to you. 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 17. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your sons who shall issue 
who shall issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. That was prophesied a hundred years previously to Daniel chapter 1. And Daniel was one of those carried off to Babylon who became an official in the palace. And ironically, Nebuchadnezzar had brought Daniel to Babylon to display his supremacy, his sovereignty. Nebuchadnezzar, I'm the supreme ruler. I'm sovereign over all things. And I can show, I'll prove it to you. You come with me. You work for me now. You do what I tell you to do. But we know that God used Daniel to display to Nebuchadnezzar and, and all the kings that followed him that he was sovereign, that he was superior, that he was supreme. Daniel wasn't the pawn. Nebuchadnezzar was the pawn. He just didn't know it. More specifically, God used Daniel's life and prophetic ministry to encourage his people during the Babylonian exile by by comforting them and by reassuring them that, that, guess what, guys? God is still in control. Nebuchadnezzar may be on the throne on earth, but God was still on his throne in heaven. Now put yourself in the sandals of the exiles or these, those who have been taken into exile who are experiencing all these bad things. Wouldn't it appear to you that God had been defeated and that he was inferior to the gods of the Babylonians? I mean, God's temple was leveled. The holy city was destroyed. The, the people, his people had been captured and hauled off to serve as, as slaves in a foreign land. I mean, it appears that, that paganism has triumphed over the nation of Israel and God's cause is lost. They were living in a time when they had every reason to believe that all the promises that God had made to them would never be fulfilled. They had blown it big time, and it was over. They were probably wondering, where is God in all this? Has he forgotten us? Has has he deserted us? Is he really still in control? But despite all appearances... God wanted them to know that he was still in control and that his sovereign purposes were being accomplished even in the overthrow and the captivity of his own people. The Babylonian captivity that we see launched here in Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 begins the period when the world would be dominated by the Gentiles. It's referred to as the times of the Gentiles. Which, by the way, will last until Christ returns and sets up his messianic kingdom in Jerusalem. We, we know all about that from the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And what the book of Revelation is to the New Testament, the book of Daniel is to the Old Testament. We all know about the book of Revelation. It's the, 
the greatest prophecy of future things, right, in the New Testament, well, Daniel is the greatest prophecy of future things in the Old Testament. And in fact, you can't understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the book of Daniel. Because here in Daniel, uh, God lays the foundation for understanding the rest of biblical prophecy uh, throughout the scriptures, climaxing in the book of Revelation. The renowned and beloved professor of, at the Dallas Seminary, Dwight Pentecost, I'm sure you've heard that name before, said this, quote, the themes introduced in Daniel come to their ultimate consummation in the book of Revelation. To understand fully the culmination of God's program revealed to the Apostle John in Revelation, it is necessary to understand the inception of his program revealed to Daniel. We know in the end, according to Revelation, that God will restore the nation of Israel and establish an everlasting kingdom and nothing or no one is going to stop that. As one of our elders prayed this morning, Lord, we know you win. You win. And we need to keep that in mind when we're faced with all sorts of things in our world and in our lives where it seems like God's losing. Gleason Archer, a great um, commentator, very helpful in the book of Daniel, he says this, uh, really wrapping up the theme or summarizing the theme of the book, he says, at a time when it seemed to all the world that God's cause was lost and that the gods of the heathen had triumphed, it pleased the Lord to strikingly and unmistakably display his omnipotence. The theme running through the whole book is that the fortunes of kings and affairs of men are subject to God's decrees and that he's able to accomplish his will despite the most determined opposition of the mightiest potentates on earth. And so we're going to see here in the book of Daniel how God vindicated himself as the all-powerful, everlasting King of kings and Lord of lords, and he did it in a most interesting way through a series of stories and visions written down by his servant Daniel. And you can divide this book right down the middle. There's 12 chapters. The first six chapters are the stories of Daniel. Uh, we're very familiar with this section. Um, if for no other reason, Sunday school class, growing up, right? This is a, a favorite uh, book to go through with children, and we, we learn about the miraculous health. Um, after uh, this 10-day diet of vegetables, Daniel uh, resolving not to eat the royal food and wine, how God revealed this dream, the, the fiery furnace, the insanity of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the writing on the wall, the lion's den. I mean, we're all familiar, very familiar uh, with, with, these, um, with these stories. And what's interesting about the first six chapters is at the end of it all, we see how the supreme rulers of the world in those days, in that day, were all convinced that God was the greatest power in heaven and earth. And they worshiped and they praised him as the sovereign ruler of the universe. And in my opinion, I think some of those guys, some of those kings that we're going to meet in these first six chapters got saved. I think we're going to be in heaven with them. But that's typically where our knowledge of Daniel stops. 
Daniel in the lion's den, boom, chapter 6. I don't know about you, but I was never in a Sunday school class that said, okay, kids, we've covered chapters 1 through 6. Now let's go into chapters 7 through 12. And let's talk about the visions of Daniel. No, he pretty much wrapped things up and moved on, and you thought, maybe some of you thought there was only six chapters in Daniel. You didn't even know there were six more chapters. Well, because that's where the, the, the confusing section begins. And um, this, the, these chapters, chapter 7 through, through, through 12, um, really have led to all kinds of, of, of end-time speculation. And, and uh, as we look at these, these, these visions, we're going to see how they, 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 they give us insight into world affairs and the deliberations of kings and the victories or, and defeats of, of, of their armies. And, and, and what we're going to see, all of this rests in God's hand. That, that God is the God of history. God is in control of history. In fact, in, in chapters 7 through 11 of Daniel, there, there, there have been more prophecies fulfilled in history based on those chapters than any other book of the Bible. I mean, it's so accurate in, in foretelling the future that liberals deny that it was written by Daniel in the 6th century. They say, well, this, I mean, there's no way he could have known this stuff ahead of time, this with this precision, this amount of precision. And so clearly this is probably written in the second century. Um, it's writing history, and they, they're making it look like prophecy. And so what they do is they reject the supernatural nature of God's word. And they forget, ultimately, it wasn't Daniel writing these things. It was the Spirit of God writing these things. And so, at the end of the day, the real hero of the book of Daniel is not Daniel, it's Daniel's God. Hopefully you grabbed the little outline that uh, I put in the bulletin. Go ahead and pull that out if you haven't already. I want to encourage you to take this and maybe stick it uh, in the first chapter of Daniel. Use it as a little bookmark for our study this spring. Uh, Whenever I launch into a new study, I try to get my mind around it and get the big picture clearly in my mind, because if I don't see it, know it, I can't help you see it or know it. And so this is something that I try to work very hard on, is pulling this together, simplifying it, summarizing it. And so here you have just a simple uh, sheet that has the title, the theme, the key verses, and the outline of the book of Daniel. Hopefully it'll serve you well as a little blueprint to follow as we go through our study together, but the title, as you have already seen on the screen behind me, is, is simply, if I was to put a title on the book of Daniel, it's simply, Our God Reigns. Amen? Our God Reigns. And, and then just to kind of pull together some of, the, some of the details, which I think are so providential here in the book of, of Daniel, you could simply say that the book is about serving the king of heaven in a world of pawns. Now we're starting to make some application, right, to our lives today. And let me just read the theme so we make sure we're all on the same page here. Daniel's life and ministry were ordained by God to encourage his people during the Babylonian exile by assuring them that he was still in control. Through the stories and visions of Daniel, God revealed his sovereign plans for world history and the coming of the Messiah through whom he would fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel, which provided them with comfort and confidence while sojourning in a foreign land. There's the gospel, by the way, according to Daniel. 
Kings and kingdoms on earth will come and go, ultimately serving to advance the eternal purposes of the Most High God, who has established His throne in heaven. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all those who honor and serve Him will reign with Him forever. While we wait for that glorious day to come, we can trust that God's sovereignty is reigning over all things, even when it seems like our world or our lives are spinning out of control. You say, where'd you get all that? Well, I want to show you. Where did I get that title and that subtitle and that little bit of verbiage there under the theme? We're going to look at some verses. Just if, if you just do a quick overview of Daniel, this theme just leaps off the page, and I want you to see it with me. Turn to chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, about the matter. This is the king requesting, hey, what is this dream I keep having? Would somebody tell me? And he didn't just ask the guys to tell him what the dream meant. He said, you need to tell me what I dreamed. They're like, what? No king has ever asked us that. Are you kidding me? We not only have to tell you what it means, we have to tell you what you dreamed? He goes, yeah, I'm going to see if you guys are pulling my leg or not. If you really can tell the future. If you, if you are really uh, the, the, these great... Uh, wise men that you say you are. And so Daniel says, well, I can tell you. And so he goes back and says, hey guys, we need to pray and request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Notice the phrase there, God of heaven. You may want to take a pen and underline that every time you see that God of heaven. I did it in my Bible and it was fascinating to see how many times God is referred to as the God, not just God, but the God of heaven. Concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar saying, if you can't tell me my dream that I had and what it meant, I'm killing y'all. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. There it is again. The God, not just God. Daniel didn't bless God, but he blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to the men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Jump down to verse 28. However, there is a God in heaven. Not just a God, but there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. Jump down to verse 37. You, O king, this is Daniel talking to the Nebuchadnezzar, you, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven, there it is again, the God of heaven, Not not just God, but the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power, the strength, and the glory, and wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Verse 44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven, there it is again, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people that will crush and put, on, put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Verse 47, the king answered Daniel and said, surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Jump to chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. 
This is when Nebuchadnezzar was boasting and bragging about all that he had accomplished. It says, It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. So this was, this was Nebuchadnezzar's testimony of after God made him a cow for a few years, seven years or so, he repented of his pride and his rebellion and acknowledged that God was higher than he was. Verse 17 of chapter 4. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is the command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar was recognizing, you know what, I'm in the position I am because God put me here. I can't take any credit for it. And then more, a more lengthy session, section starting in verse 24 when Daniel is giving the interpretation of the dream here. Notice the language that he uses. This is uh, Daniel chapter 4 verse 24. O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like the cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over them over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Now he's not even saying God. He didn't say God rules, he said heaven rules. Again, a reference to God there. Therefore, a king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities, by showing mercy to the poor, and in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Maybe God will withhold his judgment on you if you repent. And then notice the fulfillment of the vision. As this happened in Nebuchadnezzar the king, 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from where? Heaven, saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. This book's all about sovereignty and who is actually in control. And you'll be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to like cattle and some periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. That must have been a sight to see. The greatest leader on planet earth at the time acting like a madman. But notice the end. What was the, what was the whole point of this? At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, here's his testimony, raised my eyes toward where? Heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. See, I thought I was the Most High, but I realized he was really higher than me. And praised and honored him who lives forever, 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. There it is. Now it's not just the God of heaven. Now it's the king of heaven. He's the true king. I'm just a pawn. For all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Chapter 5, it's interesting. He says very similar things to um, Belshazzar. When Belshazzar was um, exalting himself, a similar scenario goes, out, goes down there um, in chapter 5. Uh, just for the sake of time, we won't read that, but I encourage you, you have the verses there written down on the, the outline. But then look at chapter 6, verse 26. We get to Daniel in the lion's den. So again, every one of these stories that we're so familiar with, um, the fiery furnace, right? What was that all about? <laughs> throwing, throwing my guys in the fiery furnace? I created the sun. You think your furnace scares me? I- I'm bigger than your furnace, right? In fact, I'm going into your furnace with them, right? It, and then the story of, uh, you know, the, the, the um, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar being a madman. It's all about who's sovereign. Daniel uh, chapter 5 with Belshazzar, the writing on the wall. Who's, who's in control here? You think you're in control. I know you're not. I'm in control. Daniel chapter 6, again, in the lion's den, another story that we are all familiar with. Verse 26, this is Darius at the end when it's all said and done and he was sweating bullets all night thinking, oh man, what did I just do? I can sign my, 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 my best man to death because of my dumb decree and these knuckleheads got me to sign this thing and, and now I'm, I'm stuck. And, and this is what he said, I made a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel for he is the living God and enduring forever and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. In other words, he was comparing... God's dominion with his own dominion. But he realized he wasn't as big as he thought he was. And where's all this going, by the way? Well, you got to slip over into the second section here, chapter 7, into this section where we go from stories to visions, and it begins to become clear what is this all about. Chapter 7, verse 13. The Son of Man presented is the title in my Bible. Who's that, by the way? Jesus. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ, both his first and second coming. And then verse 27 kind of wraps it all together with a big old bow. Chapter 7, verse 27. Then the sovereignty, 
the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Guess what? We just got included in this prophecy. This is not just about Jesus. This is about Jesus and all his followers. We are the people of the saints of the highest one. And we will share his sovereignty and his dominion and his greatness. It will not only be given to Christ, it will be given to his people. And we will live forever in his everlasting kingdom. I hope you see now that the first two verses of Daniel not only provide the setting, the historical setting for us, but they reveal the theme of the entire book. That even though the book opens up with Nebuchadnezzar on the throne, he's all big and bad, he's on the throne, he's making things happen, he's taking the the, the articles from the temple and he's bringing them back to his temple in Babylon, guess what? God is still on the throne in heaven. It's not about what's going on here on earth. It's what's going on in heaven. And God is always in the same place in heaven, and he's on his throne in his sovereignty rules over all things. I also hope you're already seeing how extremely relevant the book of Daniel is to us who are are God's people living in the 21st century. I mean, you, you can't help but see this, right? It's just the meat starting to fall off the bones here. As we consider the state of our world right now, the, the moral decay that we've seen as recent as this past year with some of the decisions the Supreme Court in our own country has made and the political upheaval we're watching even in our own democracy and uh, the economy and the fluctuating oil prices and threat of rogue nations getting nuclear capabilities and terrorism and famine and ISIS and, 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 and disasters, natural disasters. I mean, it's easy for us when we're watching the nightly news to forget that God is in control. But it's comforting to be reminded that every government official or world ruler is under the sovereign control of God, and they are merely what? Those things right there. They're their pawns that he is using to establish his eternal kingdom of which we'll be a part of. So we're talking about Kim Jong-un. Is that how you say it? The crazy man? North Korea wants to take on the world, blow us all up. Vladimir Putin, Ali Khamenei, who's saying death to America and Iran. Even in our own country, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, whoever it might be, our next president. Guess what? All pawns under the sovereign control of the almighty God who sits on his throne in heaven. And guess what? while the future might look scary for our country and for our world, and it does, we know what the future holds. We can see past the upcoming presidential election. And that's why we, never, we, need to, we must never forget that, that although we live in an ever-changing world, we are part of an everlasting kingdom. 
And I think the book of Daniel is, is key to understanding what is to come in the world and how to faithfully live and serve the Lord until that happens. As aliens and strangers in a foreign land, that's what Daniel was. And so while we wait for his kingdom to come, we need to trust that he is sovereignly controlling the events of the world as well as the details of our lives. Even when it appears otherwise. I mean, let's be honest. It's easy to believe that God is sovereign and affirm that he's sitting on a throne in heaven when everything's going good in our lives. But when things go wrong, when bad things happen, we tend to doubt that God is really in control. When you have insufficient funds in your bank account or your job is on the line or someone in your family gets diagnosed with a terminal disease or your spouse abandons you or your child rebels and that's when it's hard to trust that God is sovereign. And we begin to question like Harold Kushner questioned. I mean, if God is all powerful, he's all loving and good, why are these things happening to me? Well, why are bad things happening to, to, to good people? And we find ourselves in the same situation as Daniel and his, and his fellow exiles seeking to live and serve the Lord in a world that often seems to be controlled by random events that are out of anyone's control, even God's. What an encouragement to know that we are not at the mercy of impersonal, arbitrary forces or uncontrolled Random events. We said this when we were looking at briefly at the book of Esther, that there's no such thing as destiny. There's no such thing as coincidences or accidents or fate or luck or chance. Everything happens for a reason. God has predetermined from eternity past everything that has happened and will happen, both the good things and the bad things. God is sovereign over Evil people, evil things, while God may not be the source of evil, he is sovereign over evil. Whether it's a terrorist attack or a rape or some sexual abuse or murder or maybe mistakes and, and failures, a driver, a drunk driver, or maybe just a driver running a red light, doesn't have to be drunk. A doctor misdiagnosing a disease, a, a surgeon botching a surgery. Is God sovereign over all that? Absolutely. God is never surprised or never caught off guard by unexpected developments. There's no such thing as unforeseen circumstances of God. He's seen the end from the beginning. Why? Because he created it. Nothing is too large or too small to escape God's caring eye and governing hand. I mean, he knows when a little bird falls. So whether it's U.S. troops marching across the Middle East or your toddler crawling across your living room, they're both under God's sovereign control. And so we can rest assured that no matter what is going on in this world or in our lives, we are safe within his hands. And he is sovereignly ordering the events of our world and the events of our lives in a way that will bring him the greatest glory and accomplish in us the greatest good. 
Contrary to the false conclusion of Harold Kushner, the Bible clearly teaches that God is both good and powerful or sovereign. And while it may be difficult at times in our human minds, our finite minds, to reconcile God's goodness and God's sovereignty in the face of worldwide tragedy or personal adversity, we must remain convinced that God controls all things. Our God reigns. And coming to grips with the fact that God controls everything provides far more comfort and reassurance than accepting the fact that God doesn't control everything. It's your choice. You, got, you only can pick one of those. Either God controls everything or He doesn't control everything. Which do you find the most comfort and reassurance in? Let me close with the words of C.H. Spurgeon in a sermon he preached on the sovereignty of God. He said this, quote, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend for than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne. Spurgeon goes on, on the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, unbelievers, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great stupendous but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Kushner made a football out of God's sovereignty and punted it. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim and enthrone God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is this that we are hissed at and loathed. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us, for God on his throne is not the God they love. But it is God upon the throne that we love, and it is God upon his throne whom we trust. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sovereignty over all things. Lord, what a great reminder to us this morning that you are sitting on your throne in heaven, reigning over world affairs and also our personal affairs. And how you can do both so well, we'll never know because you are so much more uh, infinite than we are. But Lord, we confess that there are times when we question whether or not you're really in control. And we live in those days. We are a generation who's living in very troubling times in this world. And we may be going through some troubling times in our own personal lives. But Lord, we thank you for the hope that you give us here in the book of Daniel. Lord, that ultimately uh, Christ wins. 
And if we know Christ as our Lord and Savior, we win too. We're on the winning team. And we will reign with him forever and ever. And so I pray that uh, no matter what we're going through right now, no matter what we see happening in our country, in our world, that we will remember, Father, that we are part of an everlasting kingdom, that this world is not our home, it's not always going to be this way, and that we would look forward to that day when we can reign with Christ for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.